From the K-Rob Collection, this is Audio Antiques, featuring programs from the golden age of American radio. I'm Ken Robinson. On this particular podcast, I'm going to highlight the life of an entertainer who was mostly written out of American history. African-American actor, singer, and activist Paul Robeson was one of the driving forces in the civil rights movement starting in the early 20th century. Educated at Rutgers College and Columbia University, Robeson was a star football player, was named an All-American twice, and was inducted into the College Football Hall of Fame. He graduated with a law degree while playing in the NFL for the Akron, Ohio Pros. After his football career ended, Robeson became a recording star, releasing over 276 records, singing mostly gospel and folk songs, like this one celebrating the love a poor father had for his young son and wife. All that I got on the whole plantation, all that I love in the whole creation, in the round green world of the big blue skies, is a fat little fellow with his mammy's eyes, little fellow with his mammy's eyes. He played. He watched for me when the days were over. He looked so cunning and he looked so wise. That fat little fellow with his mammy's eyes. Little fellow with his mammy's eyes. Always off he can see and know me and I heist him up on the and I write him home and his mammy's prized At the fat little fellow with his mammy's eyes Little fellow with his mammy's eyes He got such ways and tricks about him I know that I can't get along without him and I thanks the Lord in the big blue skies For the fat little fellow with his mammy's eyes Little fellow with his mammy's eyes Paul Robeson then used his success as a singer to become a star on the stage, acting on Broadway in New York and in London. He became a global celebrity. Robeson was also a movie star, appearing in 15 films. The first was in 1925. In the 1942 20th Century Fox motion picture, Tales of Manhattan, Robeson appeared alongside fellow singer and actor Ethel Waters. Where'd that come from? Heaven! <laughs> Shut your mouth! Can't you see the likeness done put the mark of the Lord on this thing? <laughs> I ain't asking where it come from or why. <laughs> but it sure come at the right time, the day before Christmas. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. I've been praying for that brindle cow ever since I've been married. Glory. Praise the Lord. 
I'm going to buy me a tractor, one of them red ones, with a brand new engine a humming and a shining in the surf. <laughs> I'm going to buy me two tractors, three tractors, and a big piece of bottom land and seeds. Robeson was also an international advocate for human rights, fighting racial discrimination worldwide. But because of his activism, conservative politicians tried to brand Robeson as a dangerous radical and forced him to testify several times in Congress before the House Un-American Activities Committee. Here's an appearance Robeson made in 1956. Now, Mr. uh, Robeson... Do I have the privilege of asking who's addressing me? I'm Richard Arendt. What is your position? I'm director of the staff. Did you file a passport application in July 2, 1954? I filed about 25 in the last few months. In July of 1954, were you requested to submit a non-communist affidavit? Under no conditions would I think of signing such an affidavit. It is a contradiction of the rights of American citizens. Are you now a member of the Communist Party? Oh, please, please, please. Please answer, will you, Mr. Robeson? What is the Communist Party? What do you mean by that? Are you now a member of the Communist Party? Would you like to come to the ballot box when I vote and take off the ballot and see? Mr. Chairman, I respectfully suggest the witness be directed to answer the question. You are directed to answer the question. I invoke the Fifth Amendment and forget it. I respectfully suggest the witness be directed to answer the question whether, if he gave us a truthful answer, he would be supplying information which might be used against him in a criminal proceeding. You are directed to answer, Mr. Robson. In the first place, wherever I have been in the world, the first to die in the struggle against fascism were the communists. I laid many wreaths upon the graves of communists. That is not criminal. Chief Justice Warren has been very clear that the Fifth Amendment does not have anything to do with the influence of criminality, and I invoke the Fifth Amendment. Have you ever been known under the name of John Thomas? Oh, please, does somebody here want me to put up for perjury someplace? John Thomas, my name is Paul Robeson, and anything I have to say, I have said in public all over the world, and that is why I'm here today. Mr. Chairman, I ask that you direct the witness to answer the question he's making us. I ask you to affirm or deny the fact that your Communist Party name was I John Thomas. I invoke the Fifth Amendment. This is really ridiculous. The witness talks very loud when he makes a speech, but when he invokes the Fifth Amendment, I can't hear him. I have medals for diction. I can talk plenty loud. Will you talk a little louder? I invoke the Fifth Amendment loudly. Sir, who are Mr. and Mrs. Vladimir I invoke the Fifth Amendment. Do you know a Manning Johnson? I invoke the Fifth Amendment. Do you know Gregory Kaifitz? I invoke the Fifth Amendment. Do you know a Max Jurgen? I invoke the Fifth Amendment. Max Jurgen. Why don't you have these people here to be cross-examined? Could I ask whether this is legal? This is not only legal, but usual. By unanimous vote, this committee has been instructed to perform this very distasteful task. To whom am I talking? You're speaking to the chairman of the committee. Mr. Walter? Yes. The Pennsylvania Walter? That is right. Representative of the steel workers? That is right. And the coal mining workers? That is right. Not United States steel, by any chance. A great patriot. That is right. You are the author of the bills that are going to keep all kinds of decent people out of the country. No, only your kind. Colored people like myself? And you would let in the Teutonic Anglo-Saxon stock. We are trying to make it easier to 
Get rid of your kind, too. You don't want any colored people to come in. Could I be allowed to read from my statement? Will you just tell this committee, please, while under oath, Mr. Robeson, the communist who participated in the preparation of that statement? Oh, please. The reason I'm here today, from the mouth of the State Department itself, is I should not be allowed to travel because I have struggled for the independence of the colonial peoples of Africa. The other reason I'm here today, again, from the State Department and from the record of the Court of Appeals, is that when I am abroad, I speak out against injustices against the Negro people in this land. That is why I'm here. I'm not being tried for whether I'm a communist. I'm being tried for fighting for the rights of my people, who are still second-class citizens in this country, in this United States of America. My mother was born in your state, and my mother was a Quaker. My ancestors, in the time of Washington, baked bread for George Washington's troops when they crossed the Delaware. My father was a slave. I stand here struggling for the rights of my people to be full citizens in this country. And we are not. We are not in Mississippi. We are not in Montgomery, Alabama. We are not in Washington. We are nowhere. And that is why I am here today. You want to shut up every Negro who has the courage to stand up and fight for the rights of his people, for the rights of workers. And I have been on many a picket line for the steel workers, too. And that is why I'm here today. Would you tell us whether or not you know Thomas W. Young? I invoke the Fifth Amendment. Thomas W. Young is a Negro president of the Guide Publishing Company. I'd like to read you his testimony, quote, Paul Robeson has no moral right. To place in jeopardy the welfare of the American Negro to advance a foreign cause. In the eyes of the Negro people, this false prophet is unfaithful to their country, and they repudiate him, close quote. Do you know the man that said that? I invoke the Fifth Amendment now. Can I read my statement? It is a sad and bitter comment. While you were in Paris in 1949, Mr. Robeson, did you tell an audience the American Negro would never go to war against the Soviet government? May I say that is slightly out of context. May I explain to you what I did say? I remember the speech very well. 2,000 students who came from populations that would range to six or 700 million people asked me to say in their name that they did not want war. No part of my speech in Paris says 15 million American Negroes would do anything. I said it was my feeling that the American people would struggle for peace. And that has been since underscored by the President of these United States. Now, in passing, I said... Do you know any people who want war? Listen to me. I said it was unthinkable to me that any people could take up arms in the name of a man like Senator Eastland of Mississippi against anybody. Gentlemen, I still say that. This United States government should go to Mississippi and protect my people. That is what it should do. I lay before you, sir, an article. Quote, I am looking for full freedom, unquote, by Paul Robeson in The Worker. July 3rd, 1949, quote, I said it was unthinkable that the Negro people of America or elsewhere could be drawn into war with the Soviet Union. I repeat it with a hundredfold emphasis, they will not close quote. And gentlemen, they have not. It is clear that no Americans are going to go to war with the Soviet Union. While you were in Stockholm, did you make a little speech? I made all kinds of speeches. Let me read you a quotation. Let me listen. Do so, please. I am a lawyer. It would be a revelation if you would listen to counsel. In good company, I usually listen. 
But you know people wander around in such fancy places. You said, Mr. Robeson, and I quote, I belong to the American resistance movement, which fights against American imperialism, just as the resistance movement fought against Hitler. Just like Frederick Douglass and Harriet Tubman were underground railroaders and fighting for our freedom, you bet your life. I have to insist that you listen to these questions. I am listening. I quote further, why should the Negroes ever fight against the only nation in the world where racial discrimination is prohibited and where the people can live freely? Never. They will never fight against either the Soviet Union or the people's democracies, close quote. Did you make that statement? I do not remember, but what is perfectly clear today is that 900 million people, other colored people, have told you they will not. 400 million in India and millions everywhere have told you that. Well, this is answered the question. He doesn't need to make a speech. Did you write an article that was published in the USSR Information Bulletin? Yes. Quote, I want to emphasize that only here in the Soviet Union did I feel that I was a real man with a capital M, close I, quote. I would say, what is your name? Errant. I am quite willing to answer the question. When I was a singer years ago, and this, this you will have to listen to. I am listening. I am a bass singer, so for me, it was Chalyapin, the great Russian bass, not Caruso the tenor. I learned the Russian language to sing their songs. I wish you would listen now. Mr. Chairman, I ask you to direct the witness to answer the question. Just be fair with I me. I ask for order. The great poet of Russia is of African blood. Well, let's not go so it far afield. It is important to explain this. Did you make that statement? When I first went to Russia in 1934... Did you make that statement? When I first went to Russia in Did 1934... Did you make that In Russia, I felt for the first time like a full human being. No color prejudice like in Mississippi. No color prejudice like in Washington. It was the first time I felt like a human being. Well, I do not feel the pressure of color as I feel it in this committee today. Why do you not stay in Russia? Because my father was a slave, and my people died to build this country. And I'm going to stay here and have a part of it just like you, and no fascist-minded people will drive me from it. Is that clear? You are here because you are promoting the communist cause. I am here because I am opposing the neo-fascist cause, which I see arising in these committees. Jefferson could be sitting here, and Frederick Douglass could be sitting here. Eugene Debs could be sitting here. Now, what prejudice are you talking about? You were graduated from Rutgers. You were graduated from the University of Pennsylvania. I remember seeing you play football at Lehigh. There was no prejudice against you. Just a moment. This is something I challenge very deeply, that the success of a few Negroes can make up for $700 a year for thousands of Negro families in the South. My father was a slave. And I have cousins who are sharecroppers. I do not see success in terms of myself. I have sacrificed hundreds of thousands of dollars for what I believe in. While you were in Moscow, Mr. Robeson, did you make a speech lauding Stalin? I can't remember. Have you recently changed what your has mind about Stalin? To Stalin, gentlemen, is a question for the Soviet Union, and I won't argue with a representative of the people who, in building America, wasted the lives of my people. You are responsible, you and your forebears, for 60 to 100 million black people dying in the slave ships and on the plantations. Don't you ask me about anybody. Please. I'm sure you wouldn't want to discuss with us the slave labor camps in the Nothing Soviet Union. Nothing could be more on slavery than this society, I assure you. I would invite your attention to the Daily Worker of June 29, 1949, with reference to a get-together with you and Ben Davis, formerly communist councilman in New York. 
Do you know Ben One Davis? One of my dearest friends. He is as patriotic an American as can be. And you, gentlemen, are the non-patriots. Just a minute. You are the un-Americans. The hearing is now adjourned. I think it should be. I've been doing all of this that I can. Can I read my statement? No! The meeting is adjourned! It should be. After the break, I'll play an appearance Paul Robeson made on NBC's Rudy Valley show in 1933 during the height of his popularity. We'll hear Robeson host a radio program on New York station WQXR in 1940, supporting the anti-fascist movement in Spain. And finally, Paul Robeson being interviewed on Pacifica Network station KPFA in San Francisco back in 1958. For decades, Wikipedia has been a beacon of unbiased, free knowledge for everyone. It's a place where facts triumph over fiction and information is shared without any hidden agenda. But maintaining this incredible resource requires your help. Wikipedia is run entirely on donations from people like you. Your contribution, no matter how big or small, can make a world of difference. By donating to Wikipedia, you empower millions of individuals to access reliable information, learn about diverse cultures, and expand their horizons. You can help ensure that knowledge remains free and accessible to everyone, regardless of their background or location. So, as a former Wikipedia editor, I ask you to join us in supporting this invaluable platform. Visit donate.wikipedia.org today. The Fleischmann Feast Hour, presenting a variety entertainment directed by Rudy Valley. Everybody, this is Rudy Valley and Company. Our cast tonight includes Mr. Paul Robeson, that great Negro singer who, in my opinion, is one of the finest voices the world has ever known. Miss Ann Butler, variety comedian with a unique personality and comedy method. The Beverly Hillbillies, number one radio act on the Pacific Coast, recently arrived in California. Peter Dixon and Aline Barry, the creators of Raising Junior in an original radio drama. Miss Mitzi Green, the charming child actress whose movies, from Honey to Little Orphan Annie, you have seen and enjoyed. I know a secret. <laughs> Please, Mitzi, not now. Oh, but I know a secret. I know a secret. All right, all right. Go ahead and tell everybody. Well, ladies and gentlemen, the secret is this. I'm not really such a very little girl anymore. I'm 12 years old, going on 13. And I'm awfully tired of saying I know a secret. There. And I hope you'll pardon me for talking about myself. How's that, Uncle Rudy? That's fine, Missy. Here, here's a dime for you. Oh, gee. Uncle Ben Bernie always gives out quarters.
calling back the kiss that used to be. The nightingales wing through my evening song. It echoes in their music all night long. And from my heart to your heart out in the song, I send you my evening song. Saving time, new tune, a poem of sunset and twilight, my evening song. differences between the stage and radio is the surprising lack of successful women comics on the air. To remedy this deficiency, we hereby nominate Miss Ann Butler, our first guest tonight. Miss Butler is assisted this evening by Jimmy Wallington. Enter Jimmy and Miss Butler. introduction, dearie, but don't go away. Jimmy and I want you to stay around and join the act for a while. You know, Rudy, the three of us just kidding and laughing and joking. I know you'll enter into the spirit of the thing. Oh, you bet I will. I love to tell jokes. Mm-hmm. And that reminds me. Seems that there were two Irishmen, Pat and Ginsburg. So Mike, I mean Pat, said, uh, what's the idea of eating spinach with a ladle? Pardon me, Rudy, what did he say? Can't you hear well? He yeah. said, what's the idea of eating spinach with a ladle? Thanks, Rudy. That was a very nice joke. Now you can run along and study your music. Wait a minute. I haven't told the joke yet. Mine is play, Croon Prince. Mine is play. Don't let me stop you. No, don't worry. <laughs> so Ginsburg replies, oh, well, there's something I forgot to explain. It seems that Sandy, I mean Tony, no, no. Wait a minute. <laughs> I mean Rastus had a brother who lived in Memphis, Tennessee, or at least he used to live in Memphis. You see, his sister was a Parcheesi expert. <laughs> well, about two years after that, they... Rudy, if you don't mind, would you just skip the verses and come to the chorus? <laughs> Pat or Frankenstein or whoever it was said, what's the idea of eating spinach for the ladle? That's right, Anne. And little Molly, age seven months, comes back quick like a mongoose. Quick like a mongoose. I like that, Rudy. <laughs> quick like a cassowary, little Molly comes back. That wasn't no ladle, that was my knife. <laughs> <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, that was Rudy Valley, the singer, telling a joke. <laughs> and what a swell singer he is. Thanks a thousand times, Rudy. Well, once, anyhow. Now, if you want to step around the corner for a sandwich, I'm sure you'll have plenty of time. Dan, I've got another joke I want to tell. Fine, Rudy, but suppose you wait about 40 minutes, will you? But the program will be over in 40 minutes. <laughs> yes. 
You're telling me. <laughs> Has he gone, Ann? Yes. <laughs> yes, Jimmy, he'll get back again over my dead body. I've had enough trouble today, dearie, with my brother straining his back from overwork. Oh, is your brother a furniture mover? No, Mahatma, he's a gag rider. Oh. He strained his back trying to lift too many old jokes at once. I Nail that down, dearie. <laughs> but he's given that up. Now he's an aviator. Why, only yesterday took me up to wave at Balbow. Oh, you did, eh? Did you enjoy your flight, Ann? Yes, Jimmy. My brother got very mad at me, though. You see, we, we took some tongue sandwiches up in case we got hungry. Wait a minute. This is getting us a little bit involved, man, but go me. ahead. <laughs> well, the first thing I did, I went and dropped my tongue sandwich overboard. And he got sore at that? Furious, Diagenes, he said. <laughs> Bend over, Jimmy. There's a hurricane coming. <laughs> he said, Ann, it's about time you learn to hold your tongue. Oh, I had seven <laughs> people help me work that one up, Jimmy. <laughs> well, it was good. Right, it was. Yeah, good. divine, you sap. Not good. Look oh. at your script once in a while, will you? I <laughs> am. How do you know my lines? I ought to. I wrote that one. <laughs> You're pretty versatile, aren't you? Oh, am I versatile? I was working on a farm last week, way, way out in the sticks. Well, that sounds pretty lonely to me, Ann. Was this place lonely? Pardon me while I have a permanent wave. <laughs> the first day I was there, the farmer's wife said, There's a fly in our kitchen again. <laughs> I said, What do you mean again? And she rebounds. This will hamstring you, Jimmy. She rebounds. Well, there was one around here three years ago. <laughs> well, Ann, what did you find to do? Did you raise any chicks or anything like that? Oh, yes, Jimmy, but only a couple. I was afraid of getting caught if I kept on too long. Oh, wait a minute. Try to make sense in this broadcast, will you? They can't do anything to you for <laughs> raising chicks. You know that. Oh, chicks. I thought you said checks. <laughs> <laughs> Is my face vermilion? All right, we'll let that one pass. What else did the farmer raise? Oh, he raised deer, Jimmy. Was this farmer a great deer fancier? He had the cutest little fawn, purple with green spots. What? Be reasonable, will you? A purple fawn with green spots? Yeah, some fawn, hey, kid? <laughs> <laughs> and you might at least put out your hand, you know, when you get ready to pull gags like that. Say, uh, Peggy wasn't there at that farm with you, was she? Oh, Jimmy, don't mention that girl. Honestly, when I think of Peggy, I'm ready to be boiled in vinegar. Say, this will maim you, Jimmy. Peggy just came back from a nudist colony. A nudist colony, <laughs> eh? Why, I hope this isn't going to be a scandal about Peggy now. Don't worry, handsome. She didn't let him get a thing on her all the time she was there. <laughs> I get it, Ann. I get it. Thank goodness for that. <laughs> yeah. Say, was this really a good nudist colony? Oh, Jimmy, was this a good one? Peggy said it outstripped any colony she'd ever seen. <laughs> Say, dearie, Peggy was crazy about it. She claimed. <laughs> she claimed it was the first place she'd ever been where she could wear the same evening dress seven nights running. <laughs> Why, Ann? Do they run all the time there? Say, Jimmy, I think it's time for you to go out and get a sandwich, too. But, you know, <laughs> you know, you should have seen the mosquitoes she brought back with her. Oh, mosquitoes, eh? Were they mm. pretty big mosquitoes? Big? Were they big? Get this, Jimmy. Peggy said she didn't mind them drilling holes in her tires, but she gave up when she saw two of them dragging the camp cook out the door one night. <laughs> and that sounds like a pretty tall story to me. Well, Peggy's a pretty tall girl. <laughs> But I'll bet you gave up and came back to civilization after that, didn't you? Oh, yes, Jimmy, and I asked her about that. I said, Peggy, how does it seem to return to civilization? And she pleads, well, the first day I got back, I saw a lynching, two holdups, a riot, and seven murders. Back to civilization, eh? Say, listen, Jimmy, sometimes people get them without your explaining. <laughs> My mistake. Say, you haven't heard any news of Peggy's sister, have you, lately? You mean Ag? That's Aggie. Right, Aggie, yeah. <laughs> Oh, that girl will be the demise of me. Death to you, Jimmy. Death and I hope it comes soon. <laughs> Aggie's just been to Europe. Oh, really, Ann? How did she find friends? What is it? I said, how did she find friends? Oh, she just took the boat, Jimmy. She just took the boat. <laughs> well, you know, 
France is a very interesting country. I'll bet Peggy got a lot out of France. Say, listen, Jimmy. If Aggie or anybody else could get anything out of France, President Roosevelt would put him in the Treasury Department tomorrow. can laugh when he's unhappy Sometimes I wish I were a clown I'd like to sing away my sorrow Every sorrow, every frown Those lively jingles never cheer me I sing of love, but no one hears me. I've got to sing a torch song, for that's the way I feel. When I feel a thing, then I can sing. It must be real. I couldn't sing a gay song. That wouldn't be sincere. I could never croon a happy tune. Without a tear I have my dreams But one by one They vanish in the sky I try to smile And face the sun But romance passes by I've got to sing a torch song To someone far apart For the torch I bear Is burning there Right in my heart age 12 of Hollywood and Brooklyn. I used to know Mitzi when she first went on the stage about three years ago. She was a sweet kid then, and I'm glad to discover when I met her again this week that she is still just a nice little girl, entirely unspoiled by her Hollywood experience. Her remarkable gift of mimicry is, I think, quite unequaled on the stage. She has prepared for us three of these personality impressions and a song of her own. The first impression, Bert La, Miss Mitzi Green. Hello, folks. Hiya, Rudy. How's things and stuff? 
some program. This is a colossal aggravation of the wonders of the world. They're more than wonders. They're wonderful. Some fun, eh, kid? Some goings on. Jolly time, happy days, and merry moments. Ah, oh, no, no, no. I'd love to stick around, Rudy. I'd love to stick. But I gotta see my Emma. I gotta see my Emma. So long, Rudy, old boy. I'll be seeing you. Ah, oh, no, 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 giving his impression of my impression of him. Red, white, blue, 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 and a hand. 
There goes my last year's girl On the arm of the guy in gray Oh, I hope that he won't get gay With my last year's girl My last year's thrill I can feel her caresses still Oh, and I still have to pay the bill For my last year's thrill I never knew what no man When I was her big moment The situation makes me mighty blue There goes my last year's girl With a cute little snoop held high Oh, I envy the lucky guy With my last year's girl There goes my last year's girl On the arm of the guy in blue Oh, I hope that he soon gets through With my last year's girl My last year's throb Hanging out with a brand new mob Oh, and who's got the head man's job With my last year's throb She must have found a new love To take the place of true love Why did I ever let her get away? There goes my last year's girl With a skin that I love to touch Oh, I guess that I care too much For my last year's girl closes our occasional broadcast on the Pennsylvania route will not be heard after the end of this month when we embark on a tour of one-nighters. Our successor, I believe, will be Phil Harris, whose great popularity in the West Coast has resulted in a call to New York. Good luck to you, Phil. by Rudy Valley, who presents Paul Robeson, Mitzi Green, Ann Butler, Peter Dixon, Aline Berry, 
and the Beverly Hillbillies. The three Beverly Hillbillies, discovered by a wandering press agent in an abandoned swimming pool far back in the Malibu Mountains beyond the Beverly Hills, captured alive and brought, kicking and screaming to Hollywood. They became overnight the greatest radio attraction on the Pacific Coast. Fresh from a triumphant personal appearance at Sid Grauman's Chinese Theater, they have brought their bids to Broadway in this microphone, as follows. Famous. I'll say Zeke is right here. What's the name of this place, Pappy? Hmm? Well, it says here on this little tin can, NBC Network. <laughs> sure must have took him a right smart spell to knit it. Hmm. Get yourself a bad judgment day. Oh. 
Open up them pearly gates. Open up them pearly gates. Open up them pearly gates for me. When you hear that trumpet blast, I'm coming home at last. Open up them pearly gates for me. the inevitable apple tree. Plus a few thousand or a few million years and the result, a typical Tin Pan Alley tune. Trouble in Paradise. Play prepared for this program by Peter Dixon. 
one of the very few playwrights who have built personal reputations writing directly for the air. Mr. Dixon, as you probably know, writes, and with his wife, Aline Berry, acts in the very popular radio serial, Raising Junior. The title of tonight's drama, Help Wanted. The players, Mr. Dixon, Miss Berry, Miss Jean Southern, and Louis Soren. Daily Star, one ad department. Yes, I'll take your ad, mister. Go ahead. Yes. 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 Yes, I'll read it back to you. For sale, diamond solitaire, almost two carats. Perfect. Sacrifice. 833 8th Avenue. Yes, it'll run tomorrow. What's your telephone number, please? Thank you. Oh, honey, here's the place. 833 8th Avenue. Oh, it's a pawn shop. Well, I, I guess it is, but... You know, I know something about diamonds, and we're going to get a real one for you. Now, remember, we can't spend too much money. Oh, sweet. Don't start that now. Come on in. All right. Yes? Could I do something for you? Why, uh, yes, I, I, I'd like to see that diamond advertised in the Star this morning. Oh, yes. It's a great bargain, too. Wait, I got it right here. Well, uh, is it set in a ring? Sure. Maybe it just fits the young lady. Look, ain't it beautiful? Oh, oh, it's lovely. Well, try it on, hon. Oh, it's awfully exciting. Oh, look, it just fits. Well, I, I guess we're really engaged now. Well, we'll take it. How much is it? Well, say, I'm really giving it away. $300. $300? Make it two seventy-five. dollars Well, I guess maybe we better look around some more. Oh, darling, you mustn't buy me this. It's, it's too expensive. Well, you like it, don't you, hon? It's lovely, but... All right, two fifty. Sold. Well, uh, I guess you'll have to wait a few minutes, though. Uh, you see, my bank's just a few blocks from here. It's all right. I'll walk over there with you. And for such nice young people, look... A little present. Just the right size. Oh, a wedding ring, too. And daily star wants that department. Yes, under apartment to let. Yes. Yes, kitchenette. Yes. Yes, I I'll read it back. For rent, small furnished apartment, one room, kitchenette and bath, $40 a month. Nine, five, six, West 12th Street. Yes. That'll be just 60 cents for one insertion or a dollar thirty for three times. Well, how do you like the place, darling? Oh, it's nice. It isn't very big. Oh, but then it'll be cozy. Oh, um, how much did you say the rent was? Uh, $40 a month uh, in advance. So it seems like a lot for me to have to walk up three flights. Oh, but the exercise won't hurt us, dear. Listen, I can afford it. Oh, Donnie, you can't really. I think you spent every cent on that engagement ring. Yes, but just look at it. I, I mean, the ring. Honey, we won't even have to turn on the lights with that ring around. All right, we'll take it, and we'll move in right away. Uh, well, I mean, we'll move in tomorrow. You see, we're getting married this afternoon. You see, uh, he can't leave his job, so uh, we're going to postpone our honeymoon. Well, I hope you young folks is happy here. Uh, uh, could I have a deposit? Oh, sure, here you are. Oh, hey, thank you. Well, now, just look around all you want, but uh, don't be late for your own wedding. I think it'll be all right, dear. Mm-hmm. Because it'll be home. Just think, darling, our own home. And daily star want ad department. Situations wanted male. Yes. Yes. 
Yes, yes. Yes, I'll read it back. Experienced newspaper man once worked as publicity representative. Box A31, the star. Have you a telephone, mister? Oh, well, you'll have to come in and pay for the ad before we can run it. Oh, hello, Donnie. You're home early. Mel, I baked a pie today. Say, give us a kiss, will you? There. Well, Donnie, what's wrong? Well, can you stand a little bad news? What's happened, Donnie? Well, I, I lost my job today. I, I was fired. Oh, well, that's terrible. Oh, now, don't worry, sweet. We'll be all right. Listen, I can easily get a job as a press agent. Of course, that'll be an awful come down after being a good newspaper man. But anyway, I'll make more money. I think it was awful of them to fire you. Now, listen, you're not going to get upset about this, are you? No. No, of course not. Nah, don't you worry about us. You trust the old man. Now, let's sample that pie. Come on. You'll get a new job soon, won't you? Oh, sure. Probably tomorrow. Oh, because... Well, never mind. It'll be all right. And Daily Star, want ad department. What's that, lady? Oh, sure. We're listed under diamonds and jewelry for sale. Yes. 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 Yes, okay. I'll read it back. For sale, diamond ring, value $300. What's your address? Oh, you don't want to give it. Uh, listen, girlie. Why don't you pawn that ring? And then maybe when times get better, you can get it back. Hey, sure, that's it. Oh, that's okay, sisters. Bye. Daily Star One Magic Party. Any luck today, Donnie? No. Oh, gosh, sweetheart. You realize I've been out of a job eight weeks. Oh, but, but you'll get one soon. Oh, I don't know. It's, oh, it's so discouraging. And then to lose a job just when my clothes are beginning to wear out. I was going to get a new suit the next payday. You should have. Well, we needed the money to live on. Donnie, tomorrow, you're going to get a new suit, new hat, new shoes, new everything. And you're going to get that job. Oh, sure, sure I will. Oh, I mean it. Here's the money. Gosh, a hundred dollars. Honey, where'd you get it? Never mind. Darling, your ring. Where's your ring? What'd you do with it? Oh, you didn't sell it. No, dear heart. It's just security for a temporary loan. Oh, but you shouldn't have... You shouldn't have it done that. It you that shouldn't have, young man. Oh, you were so extravagant buying that ring. But it'll be all right. Oh, but dear, I, I couldn't... Tomorrow, you get a job. Oh, you've just got to us. Or I won't get my ring back. Oh, I'll get it. I'll get it. Daily Star Wanted Department. Rent a house. That would go under the houses to rent. Oh, you mean you want to move into a house, I see. Yes. Yes. Yes, I'll read it back. Wanted. Small furnished home in suburbs. Rent must be reasonable. Yes, that'll run tomorrow. Yes, sir. What's the address? Well, darling, how do you like living in the suburbs? Oh, the air's so clean and nice. Oh, it's grand, darling. Oh, I'll say it is. And it's grand to have a job again and a good paycheck Oh, just when we really needed it. Mm -hmm. I'm not a bit worried now. Gosh, honey, you know if you hadn't hocked that ring and I hadn't got that new suit, and I don't suppose I'd ever had a chance for this job. You didn't fail me, Don. You got the job. Mm -hmm, I just had to. Now you have your ring back and we have this little home. Say, honey, in another year we'll be able to buy a place of our own bigger than this. Well, 
we'll have to be sort of uh, conservative from now on. Uh, you mean, you mean on account of him? Oh. Well, how do you know it'll be a him? Daily Star wants that department. What? You did. Oh, your wife did. Eight pounds, my goodness. Well, <laughs> you've got the wrong office. Hey, Lil, switch this guy to blessed events, will you? Yeah, he just had a baby. Daily Star wants that department. Yes, sir. Wait, wait, wait. What, what was that? Oh, oh uh, hey, Leo, get that guy back on the line. Here's an advertiser with a baby carriage for sale. Smart photography for humor supplied by Charlie Ruggles for the sartorial perfection of Phil Harris. And if Phil is listening, I'm only kidding. On all these counts, Melody Cruz rates four stars, particularly engaging with the manner in which this tune was used repeatedly throughout the picture. The title, Isn't This a Night for Love? program of two weeks ago. I was so impressed by the effectiveness of their sax and accordion combination that I have decided to bring them back for an occasional bow. Tonight, their version of My Oh My is a prelude to a couple of vocal choruses by Alice Faye.
ambition to find a boy like you. My, oh, my, oh, such a lovely person, and you have me rehearsing. I do, I do, I do. You're so ducky, I'm so lucky, lucky that I met you. Am I gonna get you? Baby, you can bet me. My, oh, my, oh, wild and so delicious. Oh, see, oh, God, so goodness gracious. My, oh, my. What a lovely disposition. It's been my one ambition to find a boy like you. You're such a lovely person, and you have me rehearsing. I do, I do, I do. Oh, you're so ducky, I'm so lucky. Lucky that I met you. Am I gonna get you? Sweet little baby, you can bet you. My, oh, my, oh, wild and so tenacious. Oh, see, oh, God, so goodness gracious. My, oh, my. proud to be able to introduce to you now Paul Robeson. The outline of his brilliant career is, I'm sure, known for most of them. Rutgers College and Columbia Law School graduates, Phi Beta Kappa student, all-American football player, concert artist, and actor. He has succeeded superbly in many endeavors against no small odds. This week saw the completion of his first motion picture, Eugene O'Neill's The Emperor Jones. Tonight's radio appearance is his final American concert before a trip abroad. Mr. Paul Robeson. <laughs> Mr. Robeson's first number, Waterboy with Lawrence Brown, noted arranger at the piano. Oh. 
very close to the top in any list of American music, Old Man River. Oh, man. 
trouble in paradise, how did it start? We were in paradise, now we're apart. We were so gay in love, eager to stay in love, dream life away in love. Trouble in paradise ended our dreams. Trouble in paradise, strange as it seems. Lonely am I again, learning to cry again, paying the price for trouble in paradise. Another Fleischman G star with another cast of interesting people. Your armchair is the front seat on the aisle for this show. This is Rodie Valley bidding you all good night. You can see him now, a lean, ragged man sitting on an upturned box, alone in a corner, playing the harmonica. There's something universal about a man like that. There was something universal about the man who just played the harmonica on that record, Ragged he was, perhaps, but not alone, and today, certainly not forgotten. He may lie buried under an olive tree on a hill in Spain. Perhaps he fled across the border to be trapped in a concentration camp in France. He may be among that handful of men who escaped to freedom in Mexico. He was a member of the Tailman Battalion of the International Brigade fighting the fascists in Spain. The melody he played on the harmonica was the cue to the chorus of his fellow anti-fascists to start singing. The Peatbog Soldiers, a song of protest that many of them had learned in the concentration camps of their fatherland. We are fortunate to be able to bring to you tonight some of the songs of these brave brigadiers. As far as we know, the publisher, Mr. Bennett Cerf, has the only complete set of the original records in the United States. Mr. Cerf kindly loaned these to Mr. Eric Bernay for reissuing so that copies might be generally available. For our commentator tonight, we have a man who met these gallant anti-fascists who sang for them in the trenches of Spain. It is my privilege to introduce that great actor, great singer, that great American, Mr. Paul Robeson. A little more than four years ago, on July 18, 1936 to be exact, 
International fascism declared war upon the free republic of Spain. While Germany and Italy ruthlessly bombed city after city, the Spanish people stubbornly held their ground and fought back. Deserted by all but two of the world's nations, the free men of democratic Spain, fighting without guns, and in the very end without even enough bullets for those guns, showed to all the world that the people's will to freedom will always be greater than the fascist will to conquer. Only last week, Pierre Coe, the former French air minister, arrived in, in the United States and sadly admitted to the press that France fell with Madrid, that the defeat of France's democratic neighbor to the south sealed the doom of Paris long before the first shot was fired in this present world war. But more than France fell when the Spanish Republic was betrayed and sacrificed. Almost from the very start of the fascist, in fascist invasion, anti-fascists, and in, and in those days anti-fascism was not quite the proper and fashionable thing it is today, anti-fascists from all over the world rushed to the defense of Madrid. Because they were anti-fascists, they had to risk arrest and imprisonment by their own governments in order to reach Republican Spain where they knew that their chances of being killed were greater than their chances of getting out alive. And still they poured into Spain, Czechs, Chileans, Chinese, the anti-fascist Italian exiles of the Garibaldi Battalion, the heroic American boys of the Abraham Lincoln Battalion, French and Englishmen who hated fascism more than their rulers did, Canadians of the Mackenzie Papineau Battalion, Irishmen of the James Connolly Battalion, Poles, Swedes, Finns, Cubans, Scarcely a nation in the world failed to be represented in the glorious 11th Army, the international brigades of the Spanish People's Army. First of the internationals to arrive were the Germans, the 500-odd veterans of the struggle against Nazism who called themselves the Tailman Battalion. From the day they took the field in the fall of 1936, the international brigades carried the struggle for democracy into the very teeth of the heavily armed, numerically superior armies of Hitler, Mussolini, and their satellite, Francisco Franco. In June 1938, after two years of bitter fighting, the flag of the Republic still waved over Madrid and Barcelona. Uneven as the fight had been, fascism still had not devised weapons powerful enough to destroy Spain by force. Perhaps this thought in mind the chorus of the Tailman Battalion stepped into a blacked-out studio on a June night in 1938 in Barcelona and defiantly recorded an album of six songs for democracy. Since that night, treachery and diplomatic betrayal have temporarily succeeded where the force of arms alone had failed. The puppet of Hitler ruled for his few uneasy moments in Madrid. But the ideals of freedom like the songs you will hear tonight, will far outlive the tyrants who reign as fascist dictators. Having seen the people of Spain and their friends, the internationals, during my own visit to that land, while they fought off the fascist invaders, I know in my heart how limited Franco's days really are. Perhaps listening to these songs of the Tailman Battalion's chorus tonight, you too, will feel as I did when I first heard them, that here again is imperishable proof that the people will inevitably triumph over fascism in the end. The first record we will hear is appropriately 
the song of the International Brigade. In this recording, only one voice is heard, that of Ernst Busch, of whom I shall tell you more later in the program. The words are by Eric Weinert, the famous German poet who fought in the ranks of the Taylor Battalion himself. They start something like this. From far off fatherlands we've come here. We took with us nothing but our hate. Yet, we haven't ever lost a homeland. For our homeland is now outside Madrid, with our Spanish brothers in the trenches, fighting in the hot Castilian sun. Forward, international brigade, brigadiers, forward. Raise the banner of solidarity. Wir entfernen Vaterlandgeboren, nahmen nicht als harten Herzen mit. Doch wir haben die Heimat nicht verloren, unsere Heimat ist heute vor Madrid. Doch wir haben die Heimat nicht verloren, unsere Heimat ist heute vor Madrid. Spaniens Brüder stehen auf der Barrikade, unsere Brüder sind Bauer und Prolet. Horvath Internationale Brigade, so die Fahne der Solidarität. Horvath Internationale Brigade, so die Fahne der Solidarität. Spanien frei, heißt, heißt jetzt unsere Ehre. Unser Herz ist international. Ja, zum Teufel die fremden Legionäre. Ja, ins Meer den Banditengeneral. Ja, zum Teufel die fremden Legionäre. Ja, ins Meer den Banditengeneral. Freunde schon in Madrid sich zur Parade. Doch wir waren schon da, ja kam zu spät. Norbert Internationale Brigade, hoch die Fahne der Solidarität. Norbert Internationale Brigade, hoch die Fahne der Solidarität. Mit Gewehren, Bomben und Granaten wird das Ungeziefer ausgebrannt. Frei das Land von Banditen und Piraten, Brüder Spanien, denn euch gehört das Land. Frei das Land von Banditen und Piraten, Brüder Spanien, denn euch gehört das Land. Den Faschisten gesendet keine Gnade, keine Gnade dem Hund, der uns verrät. internationale Brigade, Hoch die Fahne der Solidarität, Horvath internationale Brigade, hoch die Fahne der Solidarität. The first unit of the International Brigade, the Tailwind Battalion, made its first dramatic appearance at dawn on the morning of November 7, 1936, marching behind the purple, gold, and red banner of Republican Spain marching out to the Manzanares River, rest west of Madrid. It was largely the heroism of the Taylor Battalion that saved Madrid then, when Franco was at the city's gates. Composed of German workers, artists, intellectuals, and youth, most of its members were exiles from their fascist fatherland. But some of them had to escape from Nazi concentration camps in order to get to Spain to fight fascism. Nearly 600 strong at one point of the war, the Taylor Battalion gave so little quarter in battle that less than 50 of its fighters today are alive to tell the story. 
Those who got out of Spain when the war ended were thrown into concentration camps for the same French Republic which refused to help democracy in Spain. A few of these German fighters against fascism managed to get out of concentration camps and make their way to Mexico. And the rest? Perhaps the Vichy government knows the answer. The Tailman Battalion had its own marching song, written by two members of its own rank. When you listen to this marching song, remember that most, perhaps all of the voices which recorded in the city of Barcelona in the month of June 1938 are the voices of men who gladly sacrificed their, their lives in the struggle against fashion. June 9, 1938, when the Tailman Battalion's chorus recorded these songs in Barcelona, they had a guest soloist. He was the great German actor-singer, Ernst Busch. Perhaps you remember him as the star of G.W. Papp's Kameradschaft, which made such a hit here some years ago. Hitler remembers Ernst Busch as the proud artist who chose a penniless exile instead of the gold offered by the Nazis if he would stay in Berlin. It is Ernst Busch who will be heard in the next record, which is sung partly in Spanish, partly in German. Based on a popular Spanish folk song, it is called The Four Generals. The four generals were Franco, Mola, Varela, and Capo de Llano. Each was in command of one of the four columns advancing on Madrid. The name Fifth Column was given by the fascists to their own agents behind the Loyalist line. This song is at once simple, gay, and bitter. 
The four insurgent generals, my little mother, they tried to betray us. At Christmas, holy evening, my little mother, they'll all be hanging. Madrid, you wondrous city, my little mother, they wanted to take you. But your courageous children, my little mother, they did not disgrace you. And all your tears of sorrow, my little mother, we shall avenge them. And all our age-old bondage, my little mother, we'll break forever. Mr. Rhodeson, isn't this the record that was made during a bombardment? Oh, yes, I nearly forgot to tell you. The Germans started to drop bombs on Barcelona while this record was being made. While none of the bombs hit the studio, one hit an, an electric substation, affecting the flow of the current. On the record, if you listen, you'll hear what sounds like a series of sudden fades. What really faded was the electricity from one of the bombed substations. studio with me, Paul Robeson, who needs no introduction, and Harold Winkler, who is president of Pacifica Foundation, which operates KPFA, as most of you know. Uh, Mr. Robeson has been known and loved as an artist all over the world for many years, but he has also, I believe, uh, attracted considerable and worldwide attention in his role as a world citizen and as a person who was uh, very deeply concerned about the society in which he lived. 
I wonder, Mr. Robeson, if we could kick off by asking, uh, when did you first become involved in the <laughs> political aspects yeah. of... May I first say how, how, how happy I am and privileged to be with you here and how deeply I thank uh, this station for its kindness throughout the years. I've been on two or three others this time, but always have been, uh, know I've had a welcome here, so I want to thank you. I would say, as I indicate in a recent book, which is now out, it will be on the stands pretty soon, Here I Stand, story of my life as I tell it, not too autobiographical. It began when I was a, a little boy in Princeton, New Jersey. <laughs> Strange to say. I would, uh, technically, this is the shaping of my views, uh, a Negro boy born in Princeton, New Jersey, in a college town uh, where the students mainly came from the Deep South. You know, Princeton and Princeton, Harvard and Yale was the sort of the Southern University of the North, whether you know that or not. And so I grew up in Jersey in a rather Southern atmosphere. And so, and my father was a minister and I was shaped against that background. Uh, technically, I entered the sort of the arena in the United States of fighting for social justice for my people in a concert when I was in a concert in St. Louis in 1947, in the Post-Dispatch, where I was singing uh, at the Keele Auditorium, uh, one of the big auditoriums there, and the NAACP asked me in St. Louis at that time to come on a picket line because Negro people could not even sit in the theater, which was just across the street. And so I grabbed a, 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 a banner, and lo and behold, I saw Walter Houston coming down the street. He was in the play. So Walter walked out and joined the picket line, too. <laughs> and a few nights later, when I was doing the concert, I said that I could not quite resolve the contradiction between uh, singing to an audience in St. Louis, where there was no segregation, of course, but, but also uh, the same people uh, had not, to my mind, were not fighting to see that my people could sit in the theater. It's been corrected since. And so I said that I was giving up my career technically for the moment to enter the realm of the day-to-day -day struggle of the Negro people especially. And this was your first political uh, action? That, no, that was within this context. This is very important to get into context. My first actual, to come back to your question, was in London in 1933. It isn't very well known, which I clarify in the book, that I went to play showboat in London in 1928. Jerry Curran was with me and Oscar Hammerstein, and we had a great success. And then I did concerts in 1928, and I became domiciled and lived in England, domiciled there, paid my taxes there from 1928 until 1940, after the war began. Does this mean, Mr. Robeson, <clears throat> that you spent most of your time in England during this period? It meant that I came back now and then for concerts. I was here in Oakland many times, but I went back and spent most of my time in Great Britain. That's probably Why? True. I was there in 1930, played Othello. Uh, so again, this is extremely important. At that time, I said for the public to see that I felt, I, I would explain it today in this light. We understand why many of my people have come to Oakland, to the vicinity, from Mississippi and from the South. There have been migrations into California, I understand, today from everywhere. But for many years, as you know, uh, many of my people have left the South because the conditions in the North were better. Okay. I felt the pressure so much in 1928 that instead of stopping in New York, I just went on to London. Mm. That clear. And did you feel no pressure there in I the felt racial no, sense? I felt no, nowhere near the pressure. Now, that does not mean that you haven't the background of the English colonies and so forth. Yes, but I wonder. But the pressure, but, but I say it's a difference between right here now 
and say, let's say, the Mississippi of Mr. Eastland. You understand? Yes. This is quite different. So America is quite different. There are great differences. So I found England that much more of a difference. That's all. Mm. I felt I found Canada that way. When I was playing Othello some years ago, when we got to Toronto, the cast said to me after a week, well, Paul, why are you so different? The, uh, the, the play is, is much deeper. You seem to be freer. I said, that's quite true. <laughs> that's quite true. I'm in a country where, where there is no, this is not a question. I'm on a theater, on a stage with many other white actors. This is not a problem here. So obviously I feel freer. That's right. I'm in a different part. I don't, now I don't uh, uh, feel the pressures that one would feel in the Deep South all the time, but it would interest you to know, and I've put it, that I, and I feel any Negro, if you were honest, would have to say that even in our democracy as at present, that he is never any one second unconscious of the fact that he is a black American or a colored American. He can never be unconscious of it in any part of the United States. Mr. Robeson, have you been back to England since the last war? Oh, yes, I was back in 49. Uh, the point I wanted to 50. get at uh, <clears throat> is that when I was in England last year, I became aware of the large number of West Indians who are now That's about true. London. And I heard rather nasty overtones That's in right. my talks with uh, uh, some Englishmen that frightened me no question about, about a change that That's might right. take place in England. No, I, I, again, if you want to go further, into the, nothing could be worse than South Africa. And I'm only saying, I put these things down. What is most important is that at the height, having lived many years out and enjoying the, the, the certainly the height of... of, of, of uh, of success in Great Britain, that I decided that I must come back to my own country to struggle in this and to make the sacrifices that I have. That's the most important thing in this regard. And I am here. Now, wait, would you yes. spell this out again for me? Uh, you, you left England because England is not as attractive or oh, because no, you no. feel you have a greater mission in the United States? No, no, no. Let's don't get in that. There are many places in the world where personally it would be much easier to live than in the United States for an American Negro. In other words, and your commitment is definitely to what you feel you can do right. in this country. That's right. And Langston Hughes, in a, in, a, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a book discussion before the book club in New York just a while ago, pointed out that every important Negro novelist, not only Richard Wright, but many others, that, that the great 95% of them live in Paris or somewhere else in the world. Mm -hmm. Why? Because the pressures are personally are much simpler. And yet in the foreword of your book that I have before me, you quote Frederick Douglass as saying, a man is worked on by what he works on. That's right. He may carve out his circumstances, but his circumstances will carve him out as well. That's right. Is this part of the reason why you feel that you must be back in the United States? I made the decision some years ago, and I say certainly that I spring essentially from here, uh, like you threw the other day about the Indians in North Carolina. If you recall, that was in Robeson County. Yes, I noticed that in the item. Now, this is a very interesting thing, which I point out in my book, and which explains a good deal, too, of how I feel. Now, I was born on the edge of Robeson County, and my father is a Robeson and was a Robeson because he was a slave, my own father, a slave, of the Scottish Robesons who still control Robeson County in North Carolina. Mm -hmm. so, my, so I approach these problems from a very close point. And so, but I have a home, and my people are tobacco workers and sharecroppers today on, that, on plantations in that county. But a part of that soil belongs to me. That's, that's my roots. These are my roots in this country. On the other hand, also, I felt that, uh, 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 so somewhere, the contributions that I had, uh, could make some contribution from my background traveling about the world. 
However, I never expected, I am quite willing to say, that I would be restricted from traveling. <laughs> yes. Well, tell me, Mr. Robeson, was your commitment to the political scene then largely as a result of uh, your feeling about your own people or our own people, let's put it? Yeah. Uh, or did it have other overtones of I political say first, conviction? Like, and, first it starts uh, as an American Negro interested in my own people. The other great change is very constant in my mind. I was in the Welsh Valley, and the Welsh people sing very much like we do in, in the Negro people. Yes, I've heard Many them. of our songs, beautiful songs. And I was uh, one of the few outsiders who, who has sung at a Welsh Estithforth, their, their national festival which has gone on since the time of the Druids. And I went down in the mines with the workers, and they explained to me that, Paul, you may be successful here in England, but your people suffer like ours. We are poor people. And you belong to us. You don't belong to the, to the big weeks here in this country. And so I today feel as much at home in the Welsh Valley as I would in my own Negro section, any city in the United States. And I just did a broadcast by Transatlantic Cable to the Welsh Valley a few weeks ago. And here was the first understanding that the struggle of the Negro people or of any people cannot be by itself. That is the human struggle. And so I was attracted then to, to uh, met many members of the Labour Party, and my politics embraced also the common struggle of all oppressed peoples, including especially the working masses, specifically the laboring people of all the world. And that, that defines my philosophy. It's a joining one of we are a working people, a laboring people, the Negro people. And there is a unity between our struggle and those of white workers in the South. I've had white workers shake my hand and say, Paul, we are fighting for the same thing. And so this defines my attitude toward socialism and toward many other things in the world. I do not believe that a few people should control the wealth of any land, that it should be a collective ownership in the interest of all. Is that a democratic socialism or...? I would have to be a democratic socialism. There are many ways, however, to, to a struggle toward democracy, as I see that in a place like China, for example, today, the Soviet Union, many other places, or take our own problems uh, um, of Negroes. If we were free in the South tomorrow to carry our weight, to vote into everything, would we now look around and try to find the ten billionaires among our people? Would we attempt to build them up or would we try to answer the needs of the great millions of our people? And so I see other ways of life, socialism, as trying to solve the problems of millions and tens of millions of peoples at once in a way instead of the con instead of we would start from the individual to the masses, they start from the masses this way. Now, there are two ways, and there are difficulties each way. I, I have made the decision to join in a collective struggle, and the reason that my personal uh, sacrifices mean very little uh, in the struggle, in one way, when you see the children at Little Rock, what does, what does not giving a few concerts mean if you can make some other contribution? It's in that context. So nothing is perfect in the world. We're going toward it from different angles. I feel is a great burden of proof on every society, on our own as well, today. On our Mr. Own as well. Mr. Robeson, some years ago, I was talking to a French member of the Communist Party. Yes. And in the course of our discussion, he said to me, uh, you, Mr. Winkler, are a Jeffersonian Democrat. Yes. You can afford it in your rich uh, uh, land, yes. but in my land and in other lands, we must give up our freedom now to certain men in order to achieve freedom for our children in the future. This is an act of faith for me, he said, giving up my freedom now 
Uh, do you find yourself sympathetic with... Uh, I don't think that is... Uh, I would put it quite differently. No, no do I think that's any part of, uh, of any socialist philosophy or communist philosophy, as far as I know, uh, that uh, we struck it during the, during the war under Roosevelt, for example. We had to give up many privileges. Uh, they're practically telling us we have to do that again. I mean, in any sort of a war economy, in England, England, for example, they have not eaten eggs almost for years and years because of certain pressures. And it seems to me in the socialist lands, the Soviet Union, China, and many places, that that's quite true. Uh, it's one thing to say today uh, that they don't have as, uh, as shining apparel as we do, but they have uh, made tremendous scientific progress and within a one generation, so to speak, within 40 years, have become one of the most powerful countries in the world. Now, they've done it by great sacrifices, and not by, to my mind, uh, uh, they feel that the country in one sense, the man in the street, uh, may not in every essence belong to him, but he feels it's much more his than, say, uh, I do in Charleston, South Carolina, when one Ameri uh, southern American nigger explained to me that I was in the state of our great plantations. I said, are you sure about that, our great plantations? I don't feel that they're my plantations. Uh, but in one sense, some of the people in socialist lands feel that the country does belong to them in a, a real sense. Now, there are, there are uh, uh, and as far as the basic uh, uh, con concept of, uh, of the dictatorship of the proletariat and so forth, isn't it? Uh, I would say, again, bring it back to our own history. There was, as we know, a dictatorship of the North over the South in the days following the Civil War. When that di dictatorship was removed, uh, the, the, the colored people reverted practically into a kind of servitude. I could have conceived of, uh, of a dictatorship over the South for quite a longer period, from my point of view. So this is understandable. Yes. In your book, Mr. Robeson, uh, Here I Stand, you have a chapter uh, entitled The Power of Negro Action. That's right. Uh, what are some of the specific acts <laughs> which you recommend, and perhaps in the order of priority? Yeah. Well, I say any, in any Negro life, you would say that nobody, this is, seems to be rather startling to many of my friends, nobody would be startled, say, with taking the vote of the power of Italian action or Polish action in Detroit or Catholic action in New York, and so forth. I mean, that the vote would be a, a block, and the power of the Negro vote in the North in certain states. This is one very important aspect, uh, very clear. A kind of, uh, uh, we have tremendous economic power in this, uh, in this land today. Uh, there should be tremendous support of Negro business, of Negro banks, and so forth, and loan associations, and so forth. But the prime thing is, is that I'm convinced that... Yes, Taking this last uh, uh, illustration of yours, have you not found that uh, as Negro bankers uh, 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 become richer, that they grow away from uh, your people? Uh, no, I don't. I, I know do they, they remain they, a part they, of they, they total remain, Negro action? There's no way for, as I said before, for any American Negro, however wealthy, however famous, to be anything at this period of our history at some point than an American Negro. If he oh, doesn't, know it, I can if see if he doesn't a, know it, he, he'll, he'll find it out. From a racial standpoint, yeah, Mr. Robeson, yeah. but from the political standpoint of socialism, which you were discussing a few mm. moments ago, surely a Negro capitalist, uh, if he had the opportunity, would undoubtedly behave uh, according to the lights of his own uh, He has to, but, he, but I know many of the most wealthy, and they, often I feel that they don't help as much as they should. But he's forever conscious his children suffer the same things as the poor Negro's children. And at some point, he finds a way to, uh, to help.
It's, mm-hmm. it's, a, it's a little different even there. But that is uh, you're, ba- words, you're basically you feel correct. It yeah. through in a but different I, but way. But I'm really not, uh, what I'm trying to say is that, is that somewhere for our own dignity, I see, that is Africa, would you understand, Ghana today, unifying as a, with its own sort of, uh, you know, nationalist strength. Is that clear? Yes. Yeah. I feel in America, strange to say, especially in the South, that... Uh, that uh, even with all the goodwill of uh, white liberals in the country, that it's very important for the Negro people to know what they want and to unify to do it. Often in a very simple case of fighting segregation, one group of Negroes can be drawn aside because of political pressure, other pressures. We should unify too. We should unify. I feel there's got to be a unity in order to integrate. That's what I feel. But I feel that we've, we, are not, we just can't integrate as individuals. Yes. But isn't the example of Liberia, uh, for example, a sorry example, uh, as it said against Ghana? Well, yes, because that's a very simple. Firestone has taken care of that. It has been exploited to its hilt by Firestone rubber, if you don't know the facts. Yes, right. it still remains then right. an economic and question. And so has Ghana. Than racial so unity, has Ghana. I rather see. than a racial unity question. It remains an economic uh, uh, question no, in its no, fundamentals no, rather I think than the Ghana unity of also, the Negro people. Ghana has the, the, the unity of its own nation, same as Chinese or Indians, very close to India. India's just, they have a, a culture and a history that has its own national characteristics. But what will prevent Ghana from becoming another Liberia? That's the. What do you mean? Well, from, Liberia of the today pressures. is completely controlled by Firestone, not by Africans. But I, but I, but I feel that Nkrumah is going to control the economy of Ghana, and at some time be strong enough to say to the European, either you sit here and acknowledge that we run our own country, like Nehru, or else you go. But I don't see the day when Liberia can tell Firestone to do that. Oh, they're quite different. They're quite different. Liberia is a complete vassal state of American capital, finance capital, without question. They have nothing to say, nothing whatsoever. What is your reaction to the passive resistance as practiced in Montgomery? I think there was a magnificent movement, and nobody can, I say, there's nothing as far as the general thing of a nonviolent solution to the problem. This is the, there could be no other solution within our, uh, uh, within the frame of things today. I mean, this is a very important uh, contribution. Uh, uh, nobody could think of a violent solution unless the Negroes, unless somebody wanted to, 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 to ask somebody to be destroyed. I mean, that would be absurd. On the other hand, within that framework, I think that, that the Negro people have to be extremely militant and, ex- and, and demand a little more than they are demanding today and to do a little more, not to do, to do, to do something, to do other things as well as pray, let me put it, as well as pray. Do you think there's been a change in the attitude of the Negro churches toward militant political and economic action, Mr. Rowe? I think there has, because it's history, you know. Take Frederick Douglass. I belong to the AME Zion Church. Uh, there is one in this area. And uh, Douglass was a part of that church. Harriet Tubman, who formed the Underground Railroad, who was called the Moses of our people. They sang Go Down Moses when she came into the South to free the slaves. And Harriet Tubman. And we have a tradition of tremendous... Uh, consistent speaking out, you know, for our rights. Like in the whole civil rights struggle, I mean by militant, uh, letting people know that you, that you want to be free like anybody else. And I think the churches, however, a lot of the responsibility still rests upon our churches because that's where so many of our people, uh, you know, go. They have tremendous influence still. 
Mr. Robeson, do you think your artistry as a singer and uh, actor have suffered because <laughs> of your involvement in political action or profited? They have not. I feel that they have profited. They've only suffered. when They've suffered by the fact that because of my political views, which I certainly did not expect in a democracy, that I've been prevented from exercising my craft. However, I've kept singing all through the years. Uh, you may be able to test it pretty soon. I just made a recording the other day for Vanguard, which they felt was superior to any records I have ever made. My voice is still in fine shape. I've been in the area. And as far as Othello, I've worked on it. I feel I've just been invited to play at, Str at Stratford-on-Avon, uh, the Shakespeare Memorial Theatre in England, in, so as you say, in Pericles, to play the part of Gower. And I would certainly do Othello at some point in London, and I feel I would give a better performance. Uh, I feel that in every, and I, I've got a lot of things here which we won't be able to get to in my music, comparing the folk music of the world, I would say that my interest in my art has deepened just no end in the last years. And I've become interested in the music of Bartok, of Mussorgsky, many folk things, the, the, the unity of the folk music of the world, which has sprung from my political conviction that all people should be unified. I have seen it expressed in their music, and I do a program, which of all the songs of all the peoples in the world, suggesting that we are all one human family. It all comes to that. So I feel that basically that it has deepened my... Uh, my on the other hand, I have never separated my work as an artist, from my work as a human being. I've always put it even more strongly that, to me, my art is always a weapon. It's got to be good art. Othello was a weapon in racial relations, or, or at least showing that uh, we can do some things, too. I played football. My father explained to me that, well, a fellow hit me, I couldn't hit him back because they'd say we were bad and savage, so I had to stand and be knocked all around. Uh, I had to do well in my studies. So... I've never been able to divorce one thing from the other. Uh, and luckily, I don't uh, sing the kind of songs that may, you're here and you hit the high, uh, whatever it is, the high uh, B flat and the high this and the high that. I sing songs that express very much the emotions of different peoples, like the Welsh, the Scotch, the Negro, Chinese, Russian, and so forth. Well, what is the present state of play on this passport business? You were talking about your British invitations. Yes. Uh, how are you going to get there? Well... Luckily, I think at this point, the basic case is before the Supreme Court. It's the case of Rockwell Kent, uh, contending that the, which the whole, all the cases revolve around, that when the State Department put in its administrative necessities that one sign a non-communist affidavit, whether or not he is, was, or so forth, that this is a violation of constitutional rights. Uh, just wasn't just any any American now has to sign this uh, this particular proposal, and this is before the Supreme Court. And in its present temper, uh, it seems to me that the court might easily decide. And this is what you refuse to do. Right. You refuse to sign such a document. Oh, yeah, completely refuse. This is a complete investor. Did you, you know? Did you murder your wife yesterday or, you know, the day before? Are you, are you a Republican? Are you a Democrat? This is no, but my political opinions are my own business, you know. This is a complete, uh, complete... Uh, and I say we have the background of the, of the reversal in the Smith Act cases all over this country. So somebody was framed, I would say. So it shows that all of it, to my mind, is a complete hoax from somewhere. In other words, you're hoping that on the basis of some of the current court decisions yeah. that uh, you may get your passport in time to go yes, to Yes, or I have now been invited to sing on April 6th in a national television 
broadcast. Maybe I could get special permission to go. I mean, uh, there, there, and because of my background in England, there is almost a national, almost demand from England or request that I be allowed to come in April and even before the summer. And also, I take uh, some optim optimistic point of view from the fact that where no passports are needed, uh, after restricting me for many years, even in that area, this was had to be lifted because the courts would certainly, I think, have ruled that this was was completely illegal. Once I was stopped from going to Hawaii, Puerto Rico, which are parts of the United States, uh, so I can now go anywhere in this hemisphere. Oh, you're not dangerous as long as you stick to the Western Hemisphere. I'm just saying. So I'm just saying. What if a court is looking at this? How can the State Department argue that if I leave the country, this is extremely dangerous? The guy he got up in court, the fellow, and if I left, it was going to be a catastrophe. I don't know what would happen the next morning. Immediately, I get on the plane. But I can now be in Brazil, I can be in the West Indies, I can be in Canada, I can be anywhere in this hemisphere. Why can't I be in London? It doesn't make any sense to me. So I, I'm optimistic that, that I may get my passport. Mr. Rosen, <coughs> if we may change Yes, I'd like to direction. get to my concert. <laughs> uh, could I, uh, uh, however, uh, ask you some questions uh, along another line for a moment? I have three small children of yeah. my own, and I'm very much interested in the problems of uh, children uh, yeah. uh, with relation to these larger problems of a man standing up for certain things. Yeah. Ha have your children moved around the world with you? Uh, in the course of your travels? Well, I just have one boy. Oh, you just have one boy? Just one boy. And he, as you know, traveled around, but from the time he was about two, traveled with me everywhere, and lived in England, and went to school for a part of his youth in the Soviet Union. Speaks Russian very well. And uh, he is now in this country, went to Cornell, and he has two beautiful grandchildren. And uh, uh, he... Uh, he is very happy. His was a, a mixed marriage in one sense. He married a very wonderful Jewish girl of a Romanian Jewish background, and they're extremely happy. Have two this children. This is concentrating live in all the problems. All the problems. <laughs> and they are very happy and get along very well in Harlem, where they live in the Negro community. They are both, may I say, to use a much abused term, progressive young Americans. <laughs> and uh, and uh, he's an electronics engineer and a very fine acoustical engineer. We've done some work together. And uh, she teaches in school, teaches children. There are two children in school, so she teaches in you know, young children's school. And they're very happy. And my wife is a, an accredited correspondent at the United Nations and does a lot of work for different publications throughout the world. So we keep pretty busy. And uh, But I am very happy to get to the core, be back at my singing, and to say that however I have talk this afternoon that I have great faith. I wouldn't be here if I did not have great faith in our, that somewhere we will realize the, demo, the democratic potentials of our life, of our, of our society. I deeply believe that. I fight for peace. I feel we've got to live with many other kinds of systems and other beliefs in the world. We've been able to do it through many generations and centuries. That's the reason why we couldn't find peace in that destruction. Uh, and uh, and a little faster in understanding the problems of oppressed peoples, wherever they may be. But very happy to be back in the area to sing. In fact, I've come back here, you know, sung in the Negro churches at the Third Baptist in, 
in San Francisco, and I sang in Oakland, and, and I sang in Sacramento and Stockton, and I've been back at my career now for quite some time, mainly in the Negro churches. Has this been a change? Uh, I was not aware that you had, had been singing in the Negro ch churches yes. up until recently. Yes. Uh, well, I wasn't able to sing anywhere else. I wasn't able to get the auditoriums. On the other hand, we have a great tradition in Negro life. All of us, Marion Anderson, Hayes, we all began in Negro churches. And my brother is pastor of a very large church in New York. And every Sunday afternoon, you may go there and hear any of the top Negro artists in the whole concert field, Warfield, anybody. We always go back to the churches. And so it's been a very fine way to walk into a church full of about 2,000 people and say, well, Paul's here this morning, and it's just, just to see how he sounds. <laughs> it comes out very well, why, why, why fine? But I really have begun and been practicing, and, and my whole, I mean, come, have come back into the swing of things in this area. And I want to say that, that I go so far as to say in this period, some people have said no, but I have found the Pacific Coast, especially the Bay Area, uh, vastly different. I found it very different in feeling from some other sections of the United States. Other people have felt this. Many outside people who have come near to United Nations gatherings feel that you are a little more non-hysterical, that you have a little evidently deeper belief in our democratic faith. And I have, I have felt that. I felt that. So much so that I may even come out to sit around for quite a while out here. Well, we think it's a wonderful city. <laughs> when may we uh, hear you sing in the near future? Well, you're going to hear me, I hope, on Sunday afternoon, February 9th, at the Oakland Auditorium Theater. It'd be very important. It's the first time I've had a public auditorium in the area for quite some time. It's, uh, it's sponsored by an out, uh, a committee in Negro Life, an honoring Negro History Week, which you know is, has been honored now for some time. And Mr. William Duncan Allen, a very gifted uh, pianist who's, who is uh, accompanying me and who is chairman of the Bach Festival in the Berkeley area, is uh, playing many, uh, some compositions of leading Negro composers. It's an afternoon of music and poetry. I'm reciting some Shakespeare and some Negro and poetry from Negro uh, poets and uh, singing, as I say, music that ranges through all the folk music of the world. And those composers like Bartok and Musokski and Dvorak who have used the folk idiom in their, in, their, in their extended and more complex works. It sounds as if it will be a delightful afternoon. Well, I hope so. <laughs> and we are very grateful to you for coming along to KPFA. I'm grateful Good to you. Mr. Thank you, Mr. Robson. With our crazy economy, you've got to save money any way you can, and that includes your cell phone bill. Switch over to Mint Mobile and get talk, data, and text for as little as $15 a month. It's so easy. Pick the plan that's best for you, and Mint will send you a SIM card. Insert it into your phone and start saving. You can even keep your old number. Slash your cell phone bill today with Mint Mobile at krobcollection.com. I hope you are enjoying Audio Antiques, our Golden Age radio podcast. If you are, why not subscribe and tell your friends? For more information about our shows and sponsors, check out krobcollection.com. Our music is by HBeats. That's HBeats with a Z. I'm Ken Robinson. Thanks so much for listening. <laughs>